Thank you for joining us at home. We are dedicating the next few episodes to conversations on race. Our goal for this podcast from the very beginning was to simply have meaningful conversations about the foundations of home life because we really believe that the values we learn at home are those that we often live by and carry with us into the world. So we would like to share with you our journey in learning more about the systemic racism that has brought us to this day. Sadly, we as a whole have led atrocities against all minorities, particularly black people, compound for far too long. And in our ignorance, the lives of many innocent people have been tragically lost to violence. We hope that by sharing our learning process, we can encourage you to look deeper as well, to reflect on our own biases, to be curious and challenge our own ideologies and to listen and to open our minds and hearts to just have these difficult conversations. And we're confident that this is the path to positive change and that it can all start with each one of us right at home. We'd like to thank each of our experts in this series. We look to them for insight on how we can better communicate and for the tools each of us can practice to eradicate racism and create a just society for all. We're truly thankful for their selflessness to share their knowledge with us. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Howard Stevenson on racial literacy. Dr. Stevenson is a nationally recognized clinical psychologist and researcher on negotiating racial conflicts using racial literacy for schools, mental health centers, teachers, parents, and police. You can also check out his TED Talk, How to Resolve Racially Stressful Situations. And if you'd like to learn more, we will be sharing resources on our website, athomepodcast.net, and on our social media. And listen to our other guests in the series, Jane Elliott on One Human Race. And Kenny Leon on The Power of Story. This is Dr. Howard Stevenson. I can feel the love Okay, if ADT wasn't professional enough, now ADT installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. I mean, what are they going to do next? They're, they're going to start a country singing career. I would listen to a country band named ADT. Also, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with my Google Nest doorbell. Just saying. Your Google Nest doorbell? I said our. He said my. Everybody check that. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to control my ADT smart devices like my lights, my locks. <laughs> my security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. And I like to say, hey, Google, to get started. Listen, I said ours. I'm all about ours, not <laughs> mine. Help protect what matters most with all this plus 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. How have you been over the past week? Um, as I mean, I'm sure you're getting a lot of calls and you've been very busy. Yes, yes, I have. And I've been um, a roller coaster of emotions as so many other people. I feel like it's, you know, I'm just a few seconds off from crying, from yelling and ang angrily. And then um, there's some healing and all of that as well. And trying to take care of loved ones at the same time. Um, I still feel hope. So it's, it's really as many different feelings going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, well, awesome. we do have to say thank you because 
within all that frustration and, and pain, where we find hope is is speaking and listening to to people like you. Yeah, experts mm-hmm. who know how to communicate when it when it surrounds uh, racial socialization. Um, one thing I wanted to start off with, though, is can you define for us? I think a lot of people have used the word racial literacy, but don't quite understand exactly what that means. Um, there's several definitions. You know, Lonnie Guineer, um, as a famous lawyer, had written about this um, regarding uh, sort of a legal frame. And um, I've been using it um, primarily to think about it with respect to behavior and emotions. And so um, my research is on racial socialization. Does it matter when parents talk to their children about racial politics? Does it help them academically, emotionally? How do they think about themselves and others? There's a lot of positive work from that, but it's often about um, asking parents, you know, how often do you talk about this and asking young people, how often have you received this kind of information around race? Racial literacy, the way we've described it, has extended that racial socialization sort of research and world from not just asking uh, how much have you done this or how much have you heard this, but um, what we know more about um, how skillful are you in applying this when you talk to people? How skillful are you in applying these strategies uh, when someone attacks you, either micro-aggressively uh, or macro-aggressively? Um, do you have the tools to emotionally manage the stress of a racial moment so that it doesn't stay with you, so it doesn't affect your, your behaviors or your, your, um, your health? We know more now about how racism affects health outcomes in children from cardiovascular uh, issues to sleep. So, you know, what tools, racial literacy is about the ability to read, recast and resolve a racially stressful moment, which can be quite debilitating if you accumulate a lot of racially stressful moments and you um, walk away from them feeling like uh, confused. I'm not sure how to handle this. Or, or what a lot of young people do is they internalize, is something wrong with me? Um, and uh, these racial literacy skills are about how to protect yourself both emotionally um, and, 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 ment- and physically. I feel one of the, um, the, the things that, that I've heard uh, quite, uh, quite a bit is the fact that it just it's, it's scary to confront some of these issues with your family. Having parents talk to their children and they don't know they don't know how to talk to their children, or like you said, they don't know how to equip them with the right tools to be prepared in how to communicate, um, especially in a stressful situation or when they are um, confronted with some sort of racial prejudice. Um, is there, what would you say are the tools that you think that parents, whether it's uh, white parents talking to their children or whether it's black parents talking to their children or any parents of uh, diversity, how, how do you think they should uh, prep themselves? I think, um, you know, one of the things we've learned is that talking about race is incredibly stressful. And uh, for some people, it's almost so stressful, they get tongue-tied, they get paralyzed, or they run away from the topic, or they literally, some get so overwhelmed, it becomes, you know, fighting kind of moment. Um, So the first thing is, how do you manage the stress of of the conversation? How do you notice what, what effect that stress has on you? So... We've come up with some racial mindfulness approaches to help people first, before you go solving a problem, maybe ha- before you decide to have that conversation, um, you know, what do you notice about yourself when racial issues come up, right? What, what happens, like if you were to calculate, uh, we, have, we call it calculate, locate, communicate, breathe, and exhale. 
Um, calculators is, is, is first about what feelings do you notice that you're having? So uh, we've asked people, when you, if you got to watch the video of George Floyd or other incidents, what's the first thing that you notice about yourself? And some people will be very angry, some will be very sad, some maybe a combination. And then we ask them to calculate on a scale of one to 10, how intense was that feeling? My sadness was at an eight, my anger was at a six. Um, and that's very important to help you manage your thoughts in, the, in, those, motion, in, the, in those moments. Then locate, like where in your body do you feel that anger? Where do you feel that sadness? Because the body keeps the score of our feelings. Um, one of the challenging issues we've noticed in talking about race, people get really stressed not only by the conversation, but what their body is doing during the conversation that they can't control, they can't make sense of, which heightens their fear and interrupts uh, what they want to say, what they want to believe, what they want to think, and uh, how to communicate, how to even have access to memory. So locating allows you to say, wow, it's happening in my right leg, it's shaking, or it's in my throat, which keeps me from talking. I can use relaxation strategies to help calm myself in that particular area and then regain thought or access to memory um, and then speak. So you got calculate, locate, communicate is, do I notice what I'm saying to myself, self-talk? And do I also notice um, what images come to mind? Um, some people um, have described when I saw what happened to George Floyd, it reminded me of my, my brother or my father or my son or my, my siblings. And in many respects, the images come up in your head. That also affects how you speak to someone, how you listen to someone. So um, images and self-talk. And then finally, breathing and exhaling allows you, if you're really stressed in the conversation, um, because when we're really stressed, our brain goes on lockdown. We lose peripheral vision and hearing. And we're only focused on what's in front of us, which means we're really not gathering a lot of information to the left or the right. And we see this often um, with people with high-stress jobs, like police officers and teachers, who literally are making really bad decisions because on, based on limited information. And so breathing exhaling, and exhaling allows oxygen to come to your brain for you to get more access to memory and thoughts and voice and um, we think make healthier decisions in the process. And I know that's a long-winded way of talking about it, but if, if a parent said to me, what should I do first? I'd say, do this first, calculate, locate, communicate, breathe and exhale and take what you know about yourself before you have that conversation. And then they explain it to your child. Daddy gets a little upset. Mm. Um, I get a little angry, I'm a little scared because when I was growing up, you know, this happened, I felt helpless I, and I didn't know who to go to. So explaining my feelings about even how difficult it is to have the conversation can be very helpful to young people um, to appreciate whatever they're going through is absolutely okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No that's such a clear way of, of, I guess, processing feelings and, and information. And I think the problem a lot of us have is that we jump right to communicating because we, ex we feel the obligation to just speak right away before even calculating and, and locating what that feeling is or where it is. And I think if we all just paused and thought about how we are relating to a situation that we you know, right away may think like, oh, that's happening to someone else. I think that's the issue. It's not just happening to someone else. It's happening to, to all of us. So your process there really empowers every individual 
to take action within themselves first. Yeah, I was uh, watching the documentary, the the Thirteenth, um, uh, mm-hmm. and I remember when I was watching it. There's there's one um, piece of footage that they have. It's uh, from many many years ago, but it's a, it's an image of uh, an older black man walking down the street, and there's a horde of of white men around him pushing him and he's just trying to walk away uh, with dignity and he's not instigating and they just keep pushing him and they knock him down. He picks up his hat, he just puts it back on, he keeps walking. And the feeling I had in my gut was a feeling, I I mean, I had a feeling of confusion, anger, but I had this sickening pain in my gut just watching that. And I think that's one of the situations that you're talking about. So me as a white male seeing them do this to this person who is not instigating any way. He is just another human being. It absolutely sickens me. What, mm-hmm. what are the, do you feel that there, it's obviously very important for black parents to have these conversations with their children, but um, why is it equally important or, or very important for white parents to have these conversations with their children um, starting at a young age? Um, no, that's a great question in a sense, um, because um, if you don't have to deal with racism every day, um, and we know that not all white parents have to. Um, some do. Um, but if you don't, you may feel like this is not a big deal to even have a conversation about. And so you may be torn as to, you know, if I talk about race on any level, will I sort of damage my, my child's childhood in a sense? Will, will they become burdened with something um, uh, that they are too young to make sense of? And I think uh, when white parents are able to talk to their children about these, they actually are preparing their children not just for what they might go through as children, but who um, who their friends might uh, might go through and, and what their friends might go through, um, who they care about and are sort of vicariously catching some of the stress that their friends might endure if their friends talk about it or if they wa- witness their friends going through some instances of harassment. So uh, a parent who actually tells a story like you were describing might also throw in, um, you know, how, how sick and I felt, but also um, I wanted to do something, right? And then, then you could have a conversation with your child about what would you want to do? What, would, what, what did you want to do? Even, let's say you had all the power in the world, what would you have wanted to do? And that's one of the ways we think about uh, in all conversations is to imagine possibilities of action where, where you where you know you felt helpless, but um, in, in a sense, it, it can be very helpful to young people to hear uh, from a parent, you know, even though I felt helpless, what would I have wanted to do? And, and what about for um, non-Black parents of color? Does the conversation, <clears throat> I know fundamentally the conversation is the same, we are all humans, but mm-hmm. what are the nuances that non-Black parents of color can, can be mindful of? I think, um, you know, um, there has also been some books written about um, uh, non-black parents of color and, and articulate a kind of racial literacy. So if you're a white parent of a, of a child of color um, um, and the author whose name um, um, is escaping me right now, she's an anthropologist, has written about how those parents had to catch up in learning uh, in terms of what their children were going to go through that they themselves hadn't gone through. And if you think about, um, you know, all parents want to protect their child, it's like a crash course in, in racial politics. 
and parents have gone a lot those parents have gone through a lot of issues from you know what we all do kind of ignoring it keeping a colorblind sort of approach to these issues hoping might not bring them up they will go away but they're often um, quickly confronted with the reality that their children cannot ignore those things and you can't create a world where you you, you know you wouldn't be confronted by it and many are forced to have to you know learn on on the uh, on the fly but um, the same would apply around CLCBE. How do you take care of you? How do you notice what's going on with you? I think the other amazing thing that we've learned from parents, uh, non-black non and brown parents, is we, we, we think that most of our communication around race and politics comes verbally. But if you have a family that doesn't want to talk about race, um, it highlights the area of research that tells us that nonverbal communication may be way more powerful than verbal communication. So children, amazing creatures and brilliant that they are, are picking up from parents what they're not saying and what they're, what they're afraid to do as much as anything else. And they may interpret that nonverbal behavior as a reticence or a fear or that race is scary. Um, and in many respects, learn how or sort of be trained how to not talk about race, right? Mm -hmm. That they can be very skillful at not bringing up these things, at avoiding those things. And while they, those strategies reduce stress, they don't make uh, children or young people or adults any more competent at how, in how to navigate it. Mm -hmm. Would you mind giving an example that might be overlooked as an example of yeah. a, a stressful, a racially stressful situation that you know might happen every day, but we may not notice as such? Yes, um, it's a great question. There's several that come to mind. I'm trying to think, what, you know. Sometimes when you walk into a, a store, in fact, this happened at, at, for one of our uh, doctoral students many years ago, uh, who was uh, uh, African-American, walked into a store, and in the process of um, walking into that store, was first in line to see the manager. And when the manager came out, um, who was a white male, um, uh, another um, patron, a white male, came in and instead of serving the black black male student, the uh, manager went directly to the to the to the white man, and um, served him first. And it became a big incident. But um, I've seen in a lot of public places, not not sort of paying attention to who was next, or giving privilege as a function of someone who's been around longer or I know, uh, might seem benign to some people, but is it? is an example of a racial microaggression, right? That, that at some level, you want managers of stores or people to be cognizant of these issues. And those who are not cognizant that that was a racial moment that, that literally um, made the student feel incredibly um, diminished. Mm -hmm. um, and it led to some other sort of negative consequences. But, uh, you know, in some stores, they actually have numbers that you can take that could address some of that, right? where you stand in line, but some places there's no line and, and you can see biased preferences come out of that that then could lead to other issues. But in, individuals very stressful to have to witness and watch and they say, should I speak up? Should I have said that I'm next? Should I keep quiet? Should I just wait? Those are tensions that for some families they're not thinking about um, and others uh, are always thinking about. I remember when I was, I think it was, late high school or just out of high school, um, I was, I went to a store with a friend of mine who's black 
And I had never thought of this before, but he had made a comment about every time I go to a store, their security or just happened to be in the area that I'm in. And, um, and I, I hadn't thought about that before because I hadn't experienced it. And when I went into the store with him, I remember him, I remember seeing the moment we came in the door, you see the security people, their eyes go up. And then all of a sudden, whatever aisle he was in, they were over just, just out of his reach, just kind of keeping an eye on things. And I, it blew my mind. I, I had never realized that, but again, too, I had, I just had not seen it. I hadn't been paying attention or looking for that. And so um, that was something that opened up my eyes to um, a prejudice, something that I don't receive that he does. Can you define uh, for us, what do you see as the difference between prejudice and racism? So just using your example, which is a great example of, you know, prejudice would be, let's say that, um, you know, uh, folks might believe that um, black patrons who come into a store are more likely to um, steal in a sense, or do something different than white patrons. And in some level, having that attitude or belief in and of itself could be prejudicial. Or that you might think that white patrons are more likely to buy stuff in that store. And so you give them more attention. It could be uh, prejudicial in a negative or positive direction. Either way, it's still prejudice. Racism is sort of the act of power. This is a way of using power to enact those prejudices. Just because we have those beliefs walking down in and out of, you know, um, establishments in and of itself is just an attitude. But if you actually say to the security guard, because of those attitudes, I now want you to follow all the black patrons Mm. or to your customer service uh, crew, I want you to, you know, spend more time engaging white patrons because they're more likely to buy. That is racism in a sense, because your institution is using its power to block opportunity or provide extra opportunities based on uh, these racial attitudes. So racism is about the power to change someone's experience or life um, using those prejudicial attitudes. ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. Help protect what matters most with 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. You said that very professionally. I try. (laughs) Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help you make your home smarter and safer. It frustrates me when you look back and, and you dig into the, the prison system, how it's a money-making business. And they're just yeah. trying to fill the prisons so that there's more money to be made. And they're looking for reasons to arrest people to put in jail. And they're focusing the light on the black community. So what's, what's a, a yeah. path to uh, moving away from that? Yeah, that's important. And, and, and you know, one, quickly now, some people are discussing to divest, you know, from um, the any company that supports a, a prison industrial complex just for that reason, right? Because they're making money off of putting people in jail. Um, you know, you mentioned 13th earlier. My brother is Brian Stevenson, and he's the one who runs EJI, Equal Justice Initiative, and was was supportive of in, the, in that film about the narrative issue uh, and what the 13th Amend- Amendment doesn't address. But he's always talked about, Brian's always talked about, um, you know, the the... The, the, the South may have um, 
lost the Civil War, but they won the narrative around race. And in a sense, that narrative includes uh, a host of instructions about who is dangerous, who is threatening, who is more likely to commit crime. And you don't need science or information or data to support that narrative. And so people use that narrative as a way to define themselves. So if police officers are, are warriors instead of guardians uh, to protect and serve, that, that narrative helps you to then say, when I find the most dangerous, that's where I apply extreme prejudice mm -hmm. or violence or, or, or military options. And I think that um, the way that we, we can address these issues generally is to challenge that narrative. How do you challenge the narrative that this person is just as human as the other person? Um, and how do you, how do you get at, at these issues in ways that protect all citizens? And I think, you know, the, the crazy the power is, let's say if you're walking in a store, like you were saying with your friend, you know, challenging a police officer or challenging a security guard who follows my friend is that is, is often an act of, of um, um, a very powerful act because of that narrative of who ha whose voice is more important uh, to be listened to if a situation goes wrong. Um, so, you know, we know a lot about how this narrative even affects how we look at preschool children. So, you know, another question might be how early should we be talking to children? How early should we mm -hmm. be thinking about these narratives? Um, and my great friend from Yale, um, Walter Gilliam, has been studying that how we expel kids even in preschool based on race uh, without any real evidence to support that children of color are misbehaving differently than white children. And when it comes to parents talking to kids at developmental age about these issues, how do you do so in a manner that's not instilling fear? Because that is the last thing we want to do. We see all over media these, you know, it is real life, but how, how do we share it in a way that makes them aware, but isn't instilling fear or feeding into the fear? Yeah, it's a good question as well. You know, in, a, in the early 2000s, I and some colleagues wrote a book um, primarily targeting uh, black and brown parents, but we were thinking about all parents in general and wrote this statement that parenting is a lifelong acquaintance with helplessness, right? So it's, even if you think, you know, you get it one year, the next year you might feel like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. And this could happen for the entire time you're a parent. Um, so we think that everybody struggles with parenting around this sense of managing and, uh, and raising our children. But um, parents of, of color are, are navigating a world where they are stressed not only by parenting stress competency, but also racial uh, stress or, or worries about our children racially profiling. And we tell children scary things growing up all the time as parents, right? And parents will tell me, well, I don't want to talk about race because race. I said, you know, I was with a group of fifth graders in Chicago, and I asked them, do your parents ever say anything scary to you? You know, uh, and they said, yep. And generally speaking, they said, is, they say, don't talk to strangers and don't take candy from strangers, right? Um, and other parents will talk about, you know, here's what we do if, if the house catches on fire, we'll go through these, or bad touch, good touch. And I said to them, you know, do you ever um, have a, you've ever had a stranger show up to you, somebody you don't know and off you can? He said, no, but we're real prepared for it. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like they know what to do for those scenarios. But if you if you took it at face value, 
Um, that's a pretty scary thing to say to a child that somebody out of the blue might come offer them candy and take them away. But that doesn't keep children from sleeping. And it's not like that creates nightmares Mm -hmm. in children because of that. And we say that because you love your children, you have all these other ways to help them navigate difficult topics and uh, love being supreme in that regard. Race is no different in that in that sense, particularly if you can clarify, answer questions, and protect them when they are fearful. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, you have two sons. Um, how have you found, um, I mean, you're an expert, you're a clinical psychologist, mm-hmm. you're an educator with racial literacy and racial socialization. And in your house, though, do you find, even with all the knowledge that you have, that you still find certain struggles with communicating with your family? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I have uh, my oldest is 29 and my youngest now is 15. Um, And it so happens that my oldest works with my brother in in Alabama, the Equal Justice Initiative as a filmmaker, which is great. Um, um, So I feel great and less fearful because he's with somebody I know who's looking out for him in different ways, even though he's 29. I still see him as my little baby. Right. Mm -hmm. And my 15 year old. um, Julian is actually, you know, in a, in a, as a teenager, is a very different spot. So um, it's easier to talk about for the world and harder to, to manage with your own children because my fear kind of um, takes over whenever anything that's been happening the last week happens. I see them in these moments and I rehearse, you know, if I was there, what would I do? And uh, sometimes too much. And, um, I I, um, I did a TED talk regarding my youngest son when he was eight. <clears throat> he overheard uh, Trayvon Martin's parents crying on the television. Just happened to be on right after the George Zimmerman trial when he was acquitted, and he wouldn't stop talking. Dad, what about this? You know, and I wasn't ready for it. I literally, with all the experience I had, wasn't really ready. We were folding clothes. I just wanted to keep folding clothes. I didn't want to, you know, turn the TV off. But his persistence in asking the questions forced me to try to engage with him in a way that was awkward, but mostly because I usually start those conversations. (laughs) Uh, And I did it for both of them when they were eight. But this time he was starting the conversation, which changed the the rhythm and the the energy and and trying to match where he was coming from um, threw me off in a good way. But I would say it's definitely different you know, when you have to do it for yourself. You mentioned your TED Talk. Um, I know you've done a few. You also, you did one called How to Resolve Racially Stressful Situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is there a time when you were out in public or you are at um, some establishment uh, with your family and you saw uh, this racial, racially stressful situation or prejudice towards your children um, how did that make you feel? Um, and, and did that all the preparation that you that you had did that sort of go out the window in the current emotion that you had? There have been several, right? And um, it's I, it's funny how people feel like they have the right to come up to a child if you're an adult without knowing them, and then throw out things. My youngest son, we had just come from a soccer game, and um, there was a band playing in the distance. Um, uh, for another game, uh, the, the um, Star Spangled Banner. So as part of the opening of the game, and my son, uh, uh, at first, un- unbeknownst to me, decided to kneel, right? We, 
walking away. So I, I looked for him and he's back there kneeling. And, and while he was kneeling, a, a white woman came up to him and said, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, you don't know how many people who died for, to, in order for. And I, and, and I said, you know, this is, this is not about you. His father, he said, his grandfather fought in the war and he gave him the right to, to do whatever he wants to do. Leave him alone. Right. There's no reason for you to, you know, so I was angry on so many levels um, that someone felt they had the right. And I probably didn't calculate, locate, communicate too well uh, in that sense, except to say um, we have family members who have also sacrificed their lives on behalf of freedoms, including my son kneeling whenever he wants to. And in a sense, I think you know, the focus on racial literacy is how do you find your voice in those moments, right? And um, is that protection for your child? Is that some a way to send a message? Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't always go that easily, right? Because you, I, I remember myself hyperventilating. My first shock that, that he would be approached um, and what danger he might be in in a very few set of seconds but then, um, you know, what I want him to walk away with, you know, I want him to walk away remembering his grandfather mm-hmm. um, and and that more than, you know, whatever he got from the, from her. And I guess with that situation in mind, speaking to the other side of that, I guess what tools can we offer to to people who might feel offended by a, a peaceful form of, of protesting? Um, you know, for, for them to calculate within themselves what, what they're seeing, you know, cause, cause we're, we're always talking about on the side of like defensiveness, but we shouldn't have to always be on the side of defending ourselves. So yeah. on the other side, what, what can that person think, um, and walk through in their minds? I think it depends on who the person is, right? I, I think, um, in terms of white supremacists who take certain positions, I'm not sure that would go well in terms of how they might be thinking about it. Um, and I think without a debate, without a conversation, it's hard to engage someone to try a new method. But my, my encouragement would still be, you know, let's say you're confused and, and let's say you don't understand why somebody would kneel. Or you notice that someone kneeling triggers memories of you about a loved one, maybe your own father or grandfather that had fought and for these reasons, um, CLCBE would very be would be very useful to maybe help you. How would you engage a dialogue with somebody who thought differently about this peaceful protest, right? And how would you be more prepared to hear a side of this, of this that was different than yours? And then how would you then, after hearing that, be um, empowered enough to share your side of the story without it being an indictment, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think. Um, we need to have more like, you know, longer conversations, you know, not these 15 second commercial moments, but, you know, two hour full length feature conversations where you don't have to put away what you believe, but can you listen to others um, views in the process? And that's a lot of, that takes a lot of emotional energy. Mm-hmm. And, but, but I think you could use the mindfulness skills to help you stay in it. And that's the work we do help helping people to stay in, um, not run away, not turn it into a militaristic moment and not, not freeze. Well, I think in, in all 
lives uh, interactions. I mean, ra- race uh, prejudice aside, one of the biggest issues in society is lack of communication with each other. How I say something is not received the way I'm intending half the time. It's somebody receives it in a different way based on their life and their experiences. And so in general, I think um, communication could, better communication, better understanding and and thinking for a moment before speaking could really help all of us. And then specifically when we're talking about um, uh, hate and racial prejudice and every, everything that we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. even more so, I mean, the, the, that communication needs to be had. Um, when, you, uh, when, when we're looking at you know, Black, Black Lives Matter, and there are a lot of people posting on social media, um, hashtag Black Lives Matter, Mm-hmm. Um, I know there has been some uh, some back and forth about how that's being communicated, how the non-black community are communica- communicating in order uh, to support, but some people see that as us clouding um, the message of the black community. Um, what's what's your thought on how we can support with amplifying the black community's voices uh, instead of clouding um, your initiatives and what you're trying to do? Mm-hmm. I think um, it is important, you know, I mean, I, I believe, you know, one of the things Martin Luther King said uh, that I found very powerful is that in the end, uh, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And I think part of that is his own experience with, um, you know, wanting folks to speak out when it costs them something. And I think um, the idea that, um you know, even the Black Lives Matter notion being challenged is a sense that, you know, if all lives matter, why would it, why do we have to focus on that? And, you know, other folks can say, well, we don't, when's the last time you've seen someone white sort of being ordered uh, by a police officer in the ways that we've seen a host of people over the last three years, let's say, right? Do you think that is a and there's a host of data that can be thrown and, and suggested to help people just slightly rethink, you know, in a lens, that narrative that we were describing. I think that's very helpful. Um, that that this isn't just one moment in time, right? This is a time, this is something that's been going on for centuries. And in, in a sense, um, hearing from white people towards other white people, my talking about it might not have the same impact as uh, someone who looks like them, uh, who talks like them, or hears and sees their narratives very differently. And I think uh, we underestimate, like, who am I most likely to listen to if they're challenging me? <laughs> and I think that's that's another place where folks can, can speak to who in my community doesn't get this in a way, right? Um, what if my child were... Um, you know, at risk around these issues. And I think presenting that to to folks uh, in majority communities can make a big difference in how they even consider approaching the topic or mm-hmm. how I'm going to teach civil rights today mm-hmm. um, is, a, is a big issue. If you look at 80% of our teachers in, in public schools, Right. Your organizations or causes that you that you support, I know, um, play preventing long term uh, anger and aggression in youth uh, is an important initiative. Can you mm-hmm. speak to that a little bit? Sure. So um, we've been using um, racial literacy in our group therapy sort of framework for young people, but also using physical activity like basketball and sports as a way to 
help young people understand moments of stress. So we deliberately use sports as a way to help kids get into stressful moments and use the skills like CLCBE to navigate out of them. So uh, that earlier work was focusing on kids who were struggling around issues of depression and anger. But, um, in general, we found it useful with anyone where um, the physical activity is another way to work out your emotions. We can learn a lot about how you cope and solve problems and struggle with problems by how you navigate these conflicts on the court. And we can transfer that learning not only from the court, but to the classroom, to the neighborhood street corners. We also have other, other programs where we teach families how to talk to their, their children about race, where we split the parents and the children up so parents can start to work on their own traumas from childhood before they have the conversation and, and process and socially, emotionally engage that history. And children can talk about their experiences and then they can come together. And we found that very useful. And these are parents of color who still struggle about how to start that conversation, how to hear their children, and how to actually share their own stories of childhood, which children love. Children love hearing their own parents' struggles with these cultural realities. And that program is, is started by uh, Dr. Rihanna Anderson and myself called Embrace as a way to, um, to address some of the things we've been talking about today. Because it's not easy to talk about this, even for parents of color. You know, we all believe that any peace that happens in the world has to start at home. So that's why these conversations are so important. Beyond conversations within individual households, what uh, are some, I guess, what are some ways that we can take this conversation outside of the house, you know, for, for parents and for kids to apply? What's the next step in, in creating this change outside of our homes? I think schools and I think teachers and, um, you know, we've been able to, you know, show up in classrooms um, in my son's school, actually. Some teachers were open to letting us come into the classroom We've been in lots and lots of classrooms and schools around the country, but just a, a chance with young people in the high school, for example, took some of the skills and beyond what we had actually intended, decided to use CLCBE framework and to find their voice to having conversations with their peers. And so one class literally kind of infected other classes and other students on sports teams, you know, in the lunchroom, um, in the hallways, where they would literally um, use mindfulness strategy to challenge microaggressions in the school space. And um, some of the students even went to their parents or to other teachers. So it was almost like, I hate to use the word, it, was, it infected folks, you know, in, in a larger way than we thought. So schools are particularly important places, I would say, and educators um, but students to find their own voices have very creative ways to go beyond what we had thought originally um, and, and even outside of homes. Mm -hmm. and, and we're seeing that now with, with protesters and, and activists, you know, a lot of the youth population, they're the ones leading the way. Um, and can we go one step further beyond, so from home to schools, what's after that? Well, obviously, politicians are important, you know, in our government. Um, you know, the more we think about, I just heard that uh, uh, in Minneapolis, the school district decided to cut the police contract. And, and I think in a way, you, you, you and, and I hope I'm right about that, but 
part of the idea behind it is to say, if the police in the school see themselves as warriors, not guardians, as my brother has talked about, then this is hampering the education they're actually experiencing. We know that uh, in schools that have, have really difficult discipline and disproportionate discipline towards black and brown students, the culture and climate is less safe. The students, all students report uh, it as a less, a less safe environment and it affects achievement outcomes. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you could say, here's why we decided to not use police is, is also to say, um, we're trying to improve the climate of learning. And, and that's a systemic intervention. And then you could say, well, is the school teacher who's teaching social studies and history using that in their class, in their AP classes, to say, here are the kind of changes that we need to make, not only in an educational system, but in, in, a, in, a, in a justice system, right? What kind of changes like this can we make um, that make it much more possible for people to be children who are learning rather than children who, are, who could be patrolled and profiled from, you know, um, first period class to second period class, mm -hmm. to third period class to gym uh, around the entire campus. Um, now, that's not to say also that we couldn't change policing or change security guards or change how uh, they treat and provide services in schools um, as another strategy that's more humane. Is there anything else uh, as a message for any of our listeners or um, any other direction to help us understand how we can communicate uh, in a stronger way about um, racial literacy? Anything else for setting us off on the right path? Well, I think um, noticing yourself is, is probably it. You know, there's a proverb we use. It's, it's an African proverb. And, and um, the group that I work with is a nonprofit called The Lion Story because of this proverb, which goes, the lion's story will never be known as long as the hunter is the one to tell it. Mm. And at the base of that proverb, which can mean a lot of different things to people, is that everybody's story is important, but you're responsible for telling that story. You can't expect someone else to tell it. Um, and and you, you know a lot of our children and families of color are living under somebody else's story, somebody else's narrative about them. But the incredible sense of empowerment that we can have if we tell our own narrative. So I say white and black and brown parents and families, what's your story? What it, where, where do you come from in this moment? And what do you notice about yourself while you're trying to engage that story? When I look back, what do I notice about what happens to my body, to my thoughts, the images in my head? And can I use that? Because that's, that belongs to me, right? I may not know how you plan to go about this, but at least I have my own narrative as to the challenge of dealing with race and politics in this society. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to talk with us. We're also going to um, share a link to The Line Story, um, which we really appreciate everything that you do and your team do um, to help broaden our way of thinking and communicating um, to help resolve um, issues surrounding racial literacy. So thank you so much. Thank you so thank much. You. I appreciate it. This is wonderful what you're doing as well. Thank you. Yeah, it feels like home.